that's really important to get outside of the bubble that you're in and really spend time learning from other either industries or other types of businesses. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 84, and today's guest is Marissa Miller. Marissa has experienced a number of different verticals in her career. She's worked in travel, apparel, gifts, and now in a new vertical for her, hospitality. She's been on both sides of the table, working on both the brand and the provider side. We have known each other through LinkedIn only for a long time, that first connection happening when she was at JetBlue, and I was likely offering some thoughts on how the site could be enhanced. She has a great story that I'm sure you're going to enjoy. Before we get started, a quick thank you as always to Max Brandstetter of the Wild wow Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook podcast. Today, I'm joined by Marissa Miller. Marissa is currently the chief product officer at Mint House, a new upscale short-term rental startup that has over 25 properties in 16 markets. There, she oversees the product, brand, marketing, and design teams, focusing on building from scratch a new model of flexible living that is elevated, anticipated, and curated for their guests. Prior to Mint House, Marissa was the head of digital and customer products at JetBlue Airways Corp., where she was responsible for all customer-facing digital products within the multi-billion dollar global airline. She had been at JetBlue for 10 years, previously serving as head of digital commerce within the commercial division. She has over 25 years of digital experience working for other well-known brands such as Lacoste, 1-800-Flowers, and Scholastic. Marissa, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. One of the things we like to do on the show is kind of get the first story from the guest. And you'd be surprised, you know, I've done over 80 shows. And so often when I talk to folks, uh, there's something in their background that kind of gave some foreshadowing into what they ultimately have done in their career. Is there anything like that in your past, Marissa? Oh, that's great. I can't believe you've done 80 shows. That's that's awesome. Um, sure. I mean, my mother was very entrepreneurial. She actually uh, founded and ran an adult education program for about over 20 years in our school district and really you know, started that from scratch all on her own. So not sort of the traditional entrepreneur that you think about today with big startups, but it was a startup and you know really did that and grew that from scratch and was well known in the community for that. And my father was an actual rocket scientist. He worked for NASA and Grumman um, and turned chief information officer where he retired ultimately from that career. Um, and so I think, yeah, definitely their backgrounds uh, ran, rubbed off on me uh, you know, a lot. Um, I also was a very early reader. My mom used to say that I could read the New York Times when I was three years old. And I always thought it was an exaggeration until I saw my own daughter read her first words when she was two and a half. 
So I think that just that early love of reading and language and really understanding the power of words and content and how that can influence behavior and, you know, the love of stories. And so that probably led me into being really interested in the marketing world, um, you know, telling stories and, you know, really communicating through digital is extremely important. And I've always had a love of that. That's a good story. And, and dad being a rocket scientist, that must have been all kinds of jokes uh, with friends. Yes, of course. Of course. Yeah. Very analytical. So I think I get that analytical background from him as well. Okay. You know, one of the things that's, you know, so interesting about your, your background is uh, lots of disparate brands and verticals, much more so than I probably have seen in many, most of the guests uh, that I've chatted with uh, some, you know, time with, you know, flowers and gifts and then books and apparel. Uh, you, you spent some time on the agency side and airline and, and now what you're doing, you know, in hospitality. So very different. How easy or difficult you know, would you say that uh, these transitions have been, you know, to make? They're always a little challenging at the beginning, but at the end of the day, I think that digital skills are extremely transferable. I mean, they're like financial skills or, you know, human resources. It's something that you really can apply to any industry. And I actually think it's short-sighted for companies to think that you need to come from one background because you also add a whole new perspective from coming from a different background. For example, when I came to JetBlue and not having any travel or airline you know, industry experience specifically, I had a retailing background that really helped with driving e-commerce and bringing that type of thinking to the organization. So, you know, I really do think that that folks that are in digital definitely can can jump from industry to industry. Some some companies are not as open to that, but you know, the learning curve happens over the course of the first 6 months perhaps of of being in a new company as it would anyway when you have to learn, you know, the ins and outs of a new organization, but at the end of the day, I absolutely think that you can you can make huge impacts by going across different industries. Yeah, you know it's interesting. I, you know, I feel a thousand percent like you, especially if you're the guy that is, you know, has spent most of your life uh, and career in, let's say, women's apparel, where I've spent a lot of time. Mm -hmm. Each time that I've gone to talk to people, let's say, in the beauty space. And, and I'm going to cast a wide net here, but the beauty industry for me has seemingly been the one that is the least open to bringing people in unless they have had beauty experience, which is why when I meet people like you, um, so when you were interviewing for these you know, various roles, did it come up in the conversations, geez, you don't have airline experience? Absolutely. I mean, I remember going all the way back to Lacoste where they were saying, but you don't have luxury experience. You know, you don't have this. I mean, many times I had that thrown back at me that I didn't have that experience, but I was always able to explain, you know, you don't have e-commerce experience. I do. So if you want that to bring to your organization, I launched e-commerce from scratch for Lacoste. And no one in the organization at the time had any e-commerce experience at all. So why would it really matter if I had luxury experience? At the time, there wasn't a lot of people in the industry that had luxury e-commerce experience. So, um, you know, I really do think that finding a way to get past that, those naysayers and convincing them that, you know, you really would be the person that they would need to really help them get to the next level in that area. So just quickly run us through Scholastic. 800 flowers just give the the listeners some perspective of the the breadth 
Yeah, I started my career really at 1-800-Flowers, more in the traditional marketing side, which I had gone and my undergraduate was in business and marketing. And, you know, after a while thinking that traditional retail wasn't exactly my passion, but I became really interested in the e-commerce space, actually working on a store locator. So as part of my job in retail, I was working with that team and just was so fascinated by what they were doing and um, really loved the team and the vision. And, and I really felt like something was there. This is really not to date myself, but this was the the original e-commerce boom uh, before the bust. And then um, once I once I really got my hands in there, I, I basically begged them for a position in the team because I was so interested in it. And that's what really let my digital career take off. I, I started doing more um, content development, my first role at 1-800-Flowers, and then I moved into business analysis. And then from there, um, I, I moved on to um, when I got to Scholastic, I was running their first direct-to-consumer store. I've always been very passionate about the customer side of things and, and being really close to the customer, understanding customer needs and behavior. And I think that's really been also a thread that's gone throughout my career. And from there, um, I had gotten my master's degree during the time I was at Scholastic and then jumped to what I think was a big step change in my career, leading the first e-commerce store for Lacoste and growing that to bigger than our biggest flagship and then also helping them to launch into Europe. And through that experience, you know, really, really honed my, my digital e-commerce skills. So a couple of threads I want to pick up on there. You you talk about your masters. Uh, you also mentioned something about your mom in a uh, school district. So I, I caught that at the beginning. So I'm guessing education played an important part of your upbringing. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's been really invaluable to me even going and getting my master's degree because it gave me the confidence and a different way of thinking that I would have had if I hadn't gotten that. It also led to becoming an adjunct professor at NYU for several years, which was really fun teaching e-commerce marketing. But, you know, at the time, it really did become an advantage in my resume. I, many people remarked on, wow, you have that, that master's from NYU. I don't think it would matter as much today, given the rest of my career. But at the time, it really was a competitive advantage. You know, it's interesting because as I was prepping for the show, um, just happened to see an article on LinkedIn, you know, and it was all about, you know, whether or not there's value in these advanced degrees, because, you know, in, in many cases, there's a, a big opportunity cost of, of people giving up jobs if, if they're not able to do it at night. You know, there's an opportunity cost of giving up a job and, and a compensation that you have. And then, oh, by the way, paying, you know, the, uh, the tuition, you know, for your education. But it seems like it's played out well for you. Yes, but I would also say I really did do that cost analysis myself. And I specifically got, I was working at Scholastic and stayed there longer because they were helping to pay for my education and they paid for the majority of my master's. So I do think it's a cost benefit analysis and I probably wouldn't have dropped out of the workforce to, to pursue the master's, but since I was able to do it at the same time, it was definitely worth it. Thriving brands today have one thing in common. They make it a priority to understand their customers. Imperity uses AI to unify customer data and help businesses know exactly who their customers are and what they care about. Find new customers, grow loyalty, get better return on ad spend, and manage privacy compliance. An accurate, unified customer data foundation connected with the teams and tools that need it 
makes everything you do with customer data work better. Build your strategy on Imperity, the platform for customer data. Regardless of vertical or role, one of the other things that you know kind of covers all of these brands is business analysis, and and you mentioned that and KPIs. You know, as a digital commerce person, what are some of those KPIs that maybe are not as uh, well followed, um, like you know, traffic and conversion? Is there anything out there that you like to look at that might be a little bit on the edge? Yeah, well, I mean, specifically in the travel industry, one of the things that we've looked at both at JetBlue and at Minhouse is direct share. And that's such a critical component because it's how many people are converting directly from your URL versus going to an OTA where you're paying commission and tracking that and trying to shift the behavior more to the direct side. Um, but most importantly, and I think even going back to retail KPIs, what really matters is when you drill down into those KPIs. It's not just the KPIs themselves. That's just the indicator to help you figure out where to look further, but it's not the end of the story. And so digging into that to see what may have changed to shift those KPIs. And, you know, you'll, it, you'll probably see a lot of things that are hiding in those numbers. That is really the answer to either a problem or a trend or just being able to capitalize on changes. I can think of one example going back to JetBlue when our direct share shifted and our e-commerce was much lower as a share. And, you know, people were saying, what's going on? Is there something wrong with e-commerce? Well, it turned out that Expedia started selling one-way tickets for the first time for JetBlue tickets. And so that dramatically increased their share because previous to that, you had to buy around trip. So I think knowing what those fundamental changes are can really help you ascertain whether, you know, there's some problem on e-commerce we need to look at versus, you know, this is just a trend going on in the industry and can help shift strategy accordingly. So it seems like, Marissa, you know, you're talking about uh, Expedia and and direct traffic uh, to the JetBlue site. You know, for me in the, you know, the apparel space, it's kind of like if you're a brand and you're selling to another retailer as a wholesaler, you're essentially competing with that other retailer for traffic to sell your goods. Is that kind of how you thought about it at the airline? Yeah, absolutely. And and going back to my Lacoste days, it was very similar. So looking at the trends with wholesale and seeing why that may have shifted. Maybe we started discounting at a different rate than we used to. So absolutely monitoring those shifts of share can apply to really any industry that has multiple distribution channels. Okay, got it. And, you know, uh, for folks that listen to my show, they've probably heard me talk about the dark side. And the dark <laughs> side is the provider side, considering, you know, I've been a brand guy, you know, for my entire career. Uh, you made a, a leap uh, to a business called Create the Group. Uh, tell us about that. Sure. So Create the Group was a digital agency. They've had since been acquired and, and don't exist in the same form anymore. But it was a great experience. I always wanted to try working at an agency. In a lot of ways, it is the dark side. Uh, but what I found at the end of the day is that I personally am more of an operator and I like to see, see things through. Um, I did love the challenge of working on a lot of different brands and the variety. I helped launch Mark Jacobs and Donna Karen and you know a huge overhaul of David Yearman. So it was a lot of fun. Um, and I think I learned so much even in the year and a half that I was there that 
at the end of the day, it made me a much more powerful leader of agencies. And now I know what really makes agencies tick and how to partner with them to get the best work. And, and that's such a critical component of any type of leadership role, you know, in digital. Um, and hopefully they would say that it made me a better client, although I guess the jury would be out there. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny that you say that because, you know, oftentimes I believe, you know, in negotiations, you know, in order for you to be successful in a negotiation, you really need to know the other party that you're negotiating with and their economics and how they think through, you know, what they can live with. Uh, and for those, you know, people in our space that have been on the other side, you know, the the agency side, it seems like it's really helpful uh, when you come back onto the brand. Absolutely. I, I think it was tremendously helpful. Yeah. And, it's, you know, it's one of the things that I think too many agencies don't have enough of, and that's people that have actually sat in the seat of the people they're trying to sell to. It's true. I mean, I think you're touching on a common theme of when we talked about being industry agnostic or being agency driven, you know, a lot of times you're speaking to yourself, you know, and, and not understanding the other parties and, and or the other industries. And I think that that's really important to get outside of the bubble that you're in and really spend time learning from other either industries or other types of businesses. Yeah, going back to uh, JetBlue, because you were there um, for so long and because so much changed in digital for airlines during that time, are there one or two things uh, that you're most proud of while you were there? Yeah, absolutely. And JetBlue was such a fun ride and you know had the most incredible passionate team who did really really big things so i think the if i think back on the top things and there are so many but um launching the self service lobby at jfk i'm still really proud when we go in there you can see the transformation it used to be just this really crowded super stressful place where you know sometimes during holidays there were lines out the door and people yelling and you know not able to get to their bag drop line to, you know, a really peaceful place a lot of times. And we created this entire transformation of the lobby, won numerous awards for that in terms of the design of the lobby. And it was a huge project that really brought together so many parts of the team at JetBlue. And, you know, it was a priority and, and we made it happen, which was which was really terrific. And then I think the other big accomplishment was Digital 2020. It was our digital transformation program that I launched with my team starting in uh, 2017. It was, you know, a three-year plan. 2020 seemed so far in the future, but it was so named because it was also 2020, 2020 vision. Um, and that was a top to bottom transformation of all of our digital products. And, you know, I still feel incredibly proud of the work that the team did and still see that live on the site in the e-commerce engine today. So, um, yeah, both of those things, um, among many others, but we, we won several awards over my time there, like Webby Awards, Clio, GD Power, and just an amazing, inspirational team that did just tremendous work. Good stuff. And uh, I do remember, you know, when you and I first connected through LinkedIn, it was definitely around an experience uh, that okay. I had <laughs> uh, trying to book a uh, a, a ticket uh, online, but it was very early. So uh, we'll give you, uh, cut you some slack on on that. But, you know, clearly you guys did an amazing job in, in building that out during your tenure. So congratulations for that. 
but not everything goes according to plan. And either, you know, at JetBlue or someplace else along your career, was there a disappointment or, or something that, you know, didn't go the way you wanted to, but you learned a lot from it? You know, I've, I've made mistakes like anybody else. Our team's made mistakes. And I think the most important thing is just trying to figure out why that happened and, and what you can do differently next time. I think as a whole, a lot of us made mistakes during the pandemic because we were all working in an unprecedented situation without a playbook or a lot of, you know, standard things that you could turn to to figure out what was going to happen next. And so you know, some of those decisions made, I think, unfortunately, you know, still paying for them today. Um, you've seen a lot of breakdown in the travel agency because so many people in the travel world, sorry, not travel agency, in the travel world, um, because the demand came roaring back. And that just wasn't what anyone expected at the time when, you know, the planes were empty and the hotels were empty. But what I think the lesson in all of that is, is not just trying to make a plan of what to do next and saying like, okay, sales are down. How do we react to that? You also have to take the alternative point of view. What happens if we're wrong? And I think answering, asking that question every time of, you know, we think this is the way things are going, but what if it's the complete opposite and making a secondary plan for that as well? Um, I think that's something that I would do differently over the course of my career. Element is an award-winning advertising agency optimizing e-commerce campaigns around profit. In fact, they've helped 13 of their customers get acquired with one selling for nearly $800 million and one that IPO'd recently. Plus, they were ranked as the 12th fastest growing agency in the world by Adweek. The Mint House. Tell me about that. What is the Mint House? So Mint House is a really exciting flexible living model um, that has that was founded um, back in 2017 when our founder, Will Lucas, was looking for alternatives to his business travel and not wanting to stay in, you know, that standard box hotel room where you didn't have a space to work or, or cook or, or really feel comfortable living. And so Mint House was, was formed and um, you could think of Mint House sort of in between your traditional Airbnb, but with the, the comforts and safety and security of a hotel. So you'll get that full home apartment living that's incredibly comfortable. Um, our units all have some form of a kitchen. Um, some of them have full washer dryers. They may have multiple bedrooms, but just really a wonderful expanded space for you to accommodate all types of different flexible sleeping needs, whether you're traveling with extended family or you're, you're you know, staying even by yourself, but just need a separate place to work and stay. So um, it's also great because it's a short-term rental model and you don't need to sign that traditional 12-month lease. You could get, you know, something as small as one night or even several months. And so we have, you know, just so many different types of customers using our product that, you know, maybe they need a place to download size or, you know, they're staying in town, but they don't want to stay in that traditional hotel. Uh, but yeah, it's been, it's been a really exciting space. I think we're, you know, while a lot of the traditional hotel brands are actually getting into the space and having more short-term rentals, we are really the only one that's more upscale. And there's a lot more in the sort of down market space, even probably some of the ones, the brands that you've known about um, have stayed at previously, but we're really trying to do things in that you know elevated way and, and very highly functional and something that's serving the needs of all of our guests. 
there just as and this is more curious than even for the show but so for mint house for you know i was checking out property in in new york do you own those properties or are you subletting them from the owners yeah we have a couple of different models so we don't own any of our properties so it's very asset light which is you know obviously a, a great investment for us so in some cases we do have more traditional leases but in a lot of cases we're also the managed operator so we come in and operate the space a lot of times in uh, multi-family multi-use buildings in some cases we have the full building like in st petersburg we recently opened up a full building but in other cases like uh, at 70 Pine in New York, we have several floors. Although you you will still feel like it's it's our own private space, it has a separate entrance, we have a separate lobby experience. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a very, you know, feeling like a very private space, uh, but we do technically share that building with traditional residents who come in through a different, uh, a different entrance and have standard apartments in that building. Every business has got its marketing challenges. You know, you've got to get the message out. Is it more difficult to work in a company where it's not only where you're trying to get the brand out, but the, the business model is new? So maybe it takes a little bit more explanation. A hundred percent. I think, you know, refining our message has been an ongoing challenge and being able to explain it in, you know, the way that I just described to you, but in a much shorter, <laughs> a shorter space, especially if you have advertising or you have paid search or performance marketing or, or, you know, through social and things like that. So that is absolutely a challenge because it is something that does require some explanation because people aren't used to it. It's also something that in some cases faces regulatory environments. I mean, in some ways we've been really benefiting from the Airbnb changes that have happened in Manhattan because now short-term rentals have to be registered and, you know, there's a, a approval process and all of that, whereas we have a hotel license, which is terrific. But, you know, it's really hard to, to explain that to people. Um, and then I think secondarily, you know, you don't have budgets in a startup. In fact, much, much smaller budgets than I've been used to in my career. So, you know, trying to figure out how to still make that investment in the most most powerful way with, you know, the highest ROI so that you could get the message across, but still adhere to those, you know, relatively small budgets. Yeah. Well, you know, this is a marketing podcast, so let's hit on that a bit. How are you getting the message out to the consumer? We do a lot of performance marketing, you know, when people are searching for travel, you know, I knew this, you know, going back to my JetBlue days, people really do start their search a lot of times on, you know, traditional search engines. Uh, and so really heavily investing in performance marketing, um, investing in, search, uh, in organic marketing as well. Um, and then we do supplement that with a lot of social. We do some social advertising. We try to create social content or really capitalize on the the organic content that's being created and and some of our spaces just really lend themselves naturally to that which is great people love to say that they're staying at mint house and and show that it, you know look how huge this apartment is and what space they have for for instead of a traditional hotel room so really capitalizing on that um we also uh, capitalize on traditional public relations. So, you know, we work really hard on trying to amplify that message. And we've been really lucky to land some really great pieces there. Um, but yeah, it's it's an ongoing challenge with with small budgets. We we, you know, are not nearly at a point where we can invest in in much more mass 
market media. Um, so it's really about being very scrappy and trying to take on all the opportunities that sometimes come our way. And then other times, you know, really trying to aggressively go after them, especially in the local markets where we open up new properties. You know, I hadn't uh, been on the site previously, but I spent some time on it. Uh, it's very well done. It is definitely plays upscale. Uh, so uh, congratulations on the, the work that you've done. I don't know if I missed it. Were there reviews on the site of, of people that have, you know, spent time at these properties? No, that's, and that was a great point. We did a redesign that I had led um, in spring of this year, and we we did do an overhaul of our of our e-commerce site. You know, I definitely thought that was a huge opportunity for us because we were we were missing a lot of content and you know a lot of things to better explain our story. So it's it's definitely paid off. And and you know, as I always said, like, you know, the the last transaction is not where you want to lose somebody. You know, you you spent all this money getting people to your site. You want to make sure that they convert. We do have reviews obviously across all the other channels. You know, we we look at the customer reviews all the time that come into our Google Pro file that come into the OTAs and TripAdvisor and all the all the standard ones so that we can react to those and understand what's going on in each property. But at the time we launched the site, we weren't really able to take on that huge lift of, of incorporating customer reviews directly into our site, but certainly something we would think about in the future. I love one of the other capabilities uh, that you have where you're offering uh, for sale some of the products that uh, a guest would experience uh, at a property. Uh, can you talk about that? Yeah, I think that is just also a really tremendous opportunity because inspiration is so important in any kind of e-commerce and transaction. And people are inspired in so many different places. It's not just going to a traditional store. It's through media. It's through your physical environment. And this concept of native retail, I think, is really important. I will say it's not a huge piece of our business. It's something that, you know, not everybody's going to want to buy that $1,000 bed, uh, but we do sell it. We actually do sell it, which is great. So it's additional revenue for us. Um, and at the end of the day, I think it's really showing the, you know, tremendous design talent we have and, and showcasing us as tastemakers, because we're always looking at, you know, the best furniture and design and functionality. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a really interesting concept and, and, you know, definitely incorporating my retail background there. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, anytime that people are inspired and having such a great experience in, at our property, we would love to be, for them to be able to take that home with them. Yeah, that's great. I love the uh, I love the concept, and we'll see if there's an opportunity for me to use it uh, at at some point. You've had uh, throughout your career seemingly opportunities to have many employees working underneath you with you. What's your your guidance to the listener for dealing with an employee perhaps that's not meeting your expectations? Yeah, I mean, obviously, over a course of a 25-year career, that has happened. Um, you know, I, overall, I think I've been very, very lucky to have really, really high-performing teams. And so that hasn't happened that often, but it does happen. You know, I've had to fire and lay off people through the course of my career. But I think the number one thing is really giving a lot of chances and clarifying expectations. I found sometimes when I inherit somebody from another team and people would say to me that, you know, 
aside from things being egregious, when you, things are egregious, obviously that is not the right employee. But when things aren't, and people would sometimes say this person wasn't the best for X reason or Y reason, oftentimes I would find that they just really didn't have the right direction. And so spending a lot of time with them and making sure they're clear on the direction and what the expectations are, and sometimes resetting and being open about that process has really helped. And a lot of times really turned people around and, and had them become, you know, high performing people on the team. So, you know, I think it's it's a matter as a leader of taking that responsibility first and understanding why that's happening before you jump to the conclusion that it's just about the other person. That's great advice. Uh, couldn't agree uh, anymore. That's great. Thank you. Uh, we are at the end of our show. I do a two-minute drill at the end here. Uh, seven questions, one word answer. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. A brand that you admire or that inspires you? Apple. A favorite app on your phone? Oh, gosh. How is it not JetBlue? It's not JetBlue. I, well, that's true. I should say Mint House. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say Mint House. <laughs> okay. The last website other than Amazon that you shopped from? Hannah Anderson. Something that you're not good at but wish that you were? Singing. A charitable organization that you're passionate about? The St. Nicholas Project. If you had one superpower, what would it be? Mind reading. And other than your family, what's your most prized possession? My home. Uh, great. Uh, Marissa, where can people reach out to you on social media? Should they have an interest in doing so? Happy to connect with anyone on LinkedIn. Okay. Well, this has uh, been great. Um, I really appreciate you spending uh, the time this morning with me. It's nice to uh, actually have seen you face-to-face -face and, and chatted with you. We've been connected for a very long time. Uh, really enjoyed it. And you know, I have enjoyed the work that uh, you've done throughout your career. Thank you so much. This is so much fun. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Marissa Miller for coming on the Marketing Playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, when you're looking to make a hire, especially in digital commerce, the industry or vertical that someone has worked in should be less important than their skills. Digital skills are very transferable. Just because you've never worked in beauty doesn't mean that you cannot bring new and insightful thinking to that business. Open your perspective to the fact that learning from people outside of your vertical can be helpful. And number two, should you get a graduate degree? That's, of course, a very personal decision, but in so many cases, that added degree helps you to learn different ways of thinking. Sure, you gain technical expertise, but the challenge to think outside of the box, more analytically perhaps, is one reason for getting that added degree. It's not for everyone, but if you have an opportunity to have your employer pay for it, you should consider whether down the road your skills will be more appealing for potential employers. And number three, I speak about the dark side, the provider side. But it's so important to understand both sides of any business or negotiation. If you want something from someone, the best way to get it is to understand what helps them make their decisions, understand their economics, understand their thought process, and what they think it takes to be a winner. It'll help you to craft an effective strategy. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. 
If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, the devil is in the details. Thank <laughs> you.